Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Joshua Cook. He's the executive chef over at Ampersand Asian Supper Club in Short North Arts District in downtown Columbus. Primarily a ramen-focused restaurant. They do have other Japanese dishes on the menu, too, as well, open for lunch and dinner. Uh, they opened a couple years ago. They were At the time when they were doing all the construction and getting ready to open, they were really kind of the only new thing opening in the area. Either stuff had already opened or other stuff was so far in development, like they were still doing basic construction. So they were kind of the only thing that opened during this time period. And they had some initial success, and then COVID happened, and they had to pivot. Like so many other restaurants, they did so. Uh, you were able to get ramen to go, which ramen actually travels really well uh, from a to-go standpoint and a pickup or delivery standpoint, too. So we had it during the pandemic from them. We had it before when they opened, too, as well, and it's good stuff. So make sure to check them out on Instagram. At Josh Cook Picks is his Instagram, and also you can follow the restaurant at Ampersand Asian Supper Club, all one word, on Instagram is their account. Follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. Twitter, Facebook, we're on there as well. That's Spoon Mob 1. can also reach us on the website. There's a contact portal on the front page there. Check out the website though, SpoonMob.com. You can also email us directly, SpoonMob at Yahoo.com too as well. If you want to get in touch with us, always happy to hear from people that are listening. But Josh is a cool dude. He's kind of another lifer in the Columbus restaurant scene and has bounced around to a bunch of different places, has been an executive chef at a handful of restaurants and eventually took a break and was kind of just doing GM of a restaurant. And then the opportunity came with Ampersand to open up. He jumped on board for that and took that over and ran with it. So it's pretty interesting story that he has just from working so long in the short north and seeing how it's changed, the ebbs and flows and how it's going through another change from you know what it used to be to what it is now, and now it's kind of this bar scene, and there's uptick in violence and crime and everything down there too as well. But before it was, you know, a lot of galleries and gallery hop and everything was a really big deal, but all of those places have kind of been priced out. You know, they did a reconstruction on the pretty much the entire area a couple years ago. It's definitely transformed the area. Some would say for the better, some would say for the worse. To me, it's pretty much a, an extension of campus, and there's a handful of places in there, but if you're you know, I'm over 30 and staying out till 2 a.m. in a bar is not exactly my scene. So it's really geared towards the younger crowd. And there's part of it that has like this Park Street vibe kind of dabbled in there too as well. So uh, we kind of touch on all that in his career and everything. So it's really interesting conversation just to hear from, like I said, another kind of Columbus lifer in the restaurant scene and everything. Without further delay, this is my conversation with Chef Josh Cook, the executive chef over at Ampersand Asian Supper Club. Thanks for taking some time off one of your mornings here to come on the podcast. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. Had the chance to eat at Ampersand ourselves. Uh, and I think we also got to go, we were on like a ramen kick for a while during the pandemic. And, and you guys shifted to, to go, uh, which I think was pretty easy for you just because ramen does seem to travel pretty well in terms of to-go food. But we'll get to all that stuff and the pandemic later. But did some research on you, tried to find as much as I could. How did you first kind of get started cooking? Was it just something fell into out of high school, first job? Was it in your family? My mom always taught us to, you know, work hard. We have to earn our dollar. When I was younger, I collect comic books and skateboards and stuff like that. So I picked up a job at the country club in Dublin called Riviera Country Club. And I was just a food runner. I was 14 years old. And every time I went in the kitchen, they're jamming music and they're like, you know, chainsaw uh, ice sculptures and chugging beers and smoking cigs. And it just like seemed like the coolest thing ever to me back then. And uh, as a young kid, it it, uh, it definitely drew me to the back of the house. Um, so with that being said, fast forward. Um, and granted, back in the 90s, the health 
uh, codes were a lot different and things were a lot different um, as far as they are now. Um, but when I got a driver's license and I was able to drive, my first cooking opportunity was at the Bayou Cafe. Um, it was in the right next to AMC Theater in Dublin. I think I made $7.10 an hour. And um, another reason I started cooking is uh, my mom worked for the airlines uh, my whole life as a young kid. And back in the 80s and 90s, there's tons of mergers and this, that, and the other. And fortunately, she didn't survive this merger when I was about 16, 15. So that encouraged me and my twin brother, Jeremy, to, to start cooking locally just to help you know pay the bills, keep a roof over our head, uh, lunch money for school, et cetera, et cetera. So fast forward back to the Bayou Cafe. I was the fry guy. Like I literally deep fried any kind of fish you can think of for the seafood platters and you know crawdads and all this stuff. It was, it was pretty interesting. But I, I, I picked up quick and I learned very quickly and um, kind of moved my way to the hot side where the flat top and the saute burners and stuff were. And they called me Billy Idol because I had bleach blonde spiked hair. And I worked with a bunch of uh, gentlemen that were, I think, from like the Houlihan group back then. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. And I just I picked it up really quickly and I, I was just kind of a natural at it, I guess. Uh, with that being said, that was a lot of fun. The Cajun food was definitely nothing I had really experienced in my life up until then. So it was very uh, foreign to me, if you will. After that, I, I kind of bounced around because I was a, a teenager and I really, you know, didn't quite understand, uh, you know, committing to a restaurant. And if someone like looked at me the wrong way, I was like, oh, let's go to this restaurant. You know, it's kind of a punk kid back then. But I landed a, a job at Wilhelm's in Dublin. And this, it was part of the 55 restaurant group that Richard Stopper um, had back then, kind of before the Cameron Mitchells and the Bravos of the world came around to our neck of the woods. And it was the very, very first professional kitchen I had ever experienced. And um, I just really loved the camaraderie and uh, learning like the real way of doing things instead of like the, the shortcuts and things I had learned working under different camp kitchen managers and just kind of bar and grill type places up until then. So that was fun until uh, I ended up being the, the waffle bitch. So every weekend we did brunch and I had to stand in the dining room with three waffle makers and a hat about three feet tall off my head making waffles. And it was a nightmare. And, you know, you burn one and it just like takes forever to get them going again. It wasn't very pleasant. So once I, I realized that I was going to be doing that every weekend, I, I decided to run. It wasn't a lot of fun having all these people stare at you. Most chefs don't seem to really enjoy, like, I would say brunch. Uh, there are a few that do, you know, the short order, like breakfast, cooking eggs. I think a lot of people have that at some point, you know, it's one of their first few jobs. And then it's when they look back on their career, they're like, I hated doing that so much. Nowadays, like I can own an omelet station, but like back then, you know, maturity level and lack of experiences. And I'm also serving, you know, people that I go to high school with and their parents. And like, it was just kind of embarrassing, I guess, it made me a little bit self-conscious. So that's when I, I wanted to be like truly in the back of the house and not have to interact with the, like the guests in the front. I had an opportunity like right out of high school, this place called Sayota Grill, which is in Powell, uh, Shawnee Hills. It's been 17 different things since then. So uh, that place right across from Obacara that's just always constantly changing. Um, but I worked under a guy named Bill Fry. He's a good dude, taught me a ton of things. Unfortunately, he ended up leaving shortly after maybe six months of me and my twin brother, Jeremy, working there. So they kind of like handed me the reins, like as this 18-year-old kid, like right out of high school. And it was definitely a humbling experience. 
kind of fake it till you make it. And that kind of got old after a while. My brother um, injured himself like some like a boiling water accident, which was horrible. So we just decided to move on. And that's when we worked for Bravo about 98, 99 started working for them. And that's where I really fell in love with like the structure of uh, the kitchens from rank to inventory, learning the numbers, having budgets, kind of like the not so sexy part of being a chef. That's like almost one of the most important parts of being a successful chef is understanding budgets, numbers, making sure that you're making profit and you're reaching these goals because otherwise, you know, you're out the door and the next chef steps in. And I was just a really good line cook. That was also just very natural to me. I pretty much own whatever station you put me on. And I kind of worked my way through the ranks. Um, I had my executive chef at the time, Steve Andrews, super cool dude. Kind of like a, not an old hippie because he was only in his thirties at the time, but that last kind of batch of like Grateful Dead people and traveling. And But he was kind of like trying to hone down and like focus on his uh, on his profession and marriage and et cetera, et cetera. So he was awesome. He taught me so much about inventory and numbers and like like I some of the things I just explained and why they're so important. You know, having weekly meetings about all this stuff like just really fascinated me. I didn't care for like high school and being taught the way I was taught, but I was hungry for information and hungry to learn. So I kind of like that was like my new school. I then uh I had a son when I was 19 while I worked at Bravo and that was uh definitely like put me in place. I really need to focus on my career, support this this human being that I brought into the world. So that's when everything really changed for me as far as like being a professional chef, taking pride in what I do and and making sure that I'm successful and the people around me are successful because I have another mouth to feed. So that that was at that young age, I was 20 at the time, my main motivating factor in life. I never had a dad growing up, so I really just wanted to embrace it and like just be a, a kick-ass dad. Looking back on all that stuff, 18, you're running a kitchen, 19, you're a sous chef at Bravo, which is, you know, a restaurant group corporation. Did all that kind of just feel very natural to you? Like you were kind of ready for all that? Was it still kind of being at that age and then then having a son too as well? Like a lot of that stuff can feel very overwhelming. Did you ever get that sense or were you kind of like, because you seem very like mild, very even keel kind of guy. So I didn't know if like that was all still going on back then in high school or if that was just, you know, you you over the years. (laughs) I'm 42 now, so I've definitely mellowed out over the years. But back then, like I said, I was hungry. The camaraderie that they had with the group, like BDI back then, was like before Bravo went public, and it's not what it is now. But back then, it was Tudo Fresco. Like, literally, everything was fresh. It was the first kitchen I'd ever worked in where we made almost everything. And if we didn't make it, then, like, the bakers at the Worthington location would, like, bake our bread and, like, bring it to it, deliver it to us every day. So that Tudo Fresco, like, really was, like, part of, like, the brand and, like, the culture in the back of the house was awesome because we were able to meet, travel, and work with like other Bravos, like in Indianapolis or Cincinnati or Clevelandsburg or whatever. So like that kind of like group of like not like bros, but it just like it it kind of invited me in and I embraced it. It was just awesome to. I'd have a, a, a director of operations literally walk in the door, take his tie off, and send somebody home and work the line right next to the whole entire like Saturday shift. Who does that anymore? Like you know people. You never see that kind of uh, interaction like I experienced at Bravo uh, in, the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. It was really, really cool. Uh, I helped open Brio at Easton, uh, part of the opening team. I was an executive sous chef at the Hayden Run location at the time, and I was happy to do it. But, oh, my gosh, it was like it was going from like working at like the local train station to working at like Penn Station. Easton was a beast back then. And, you know, you're doing like $35,000 in sales on like a random Wednesday. Like 
how, how do you mentally prepare for that? And we hired an army of people. We, you know, turnover was crazy. Is the highest I'd ever paid employees to work for me. Like, it was just a, it was like a, whoa, like this is crazy experience. So that was kind of like the fun I had in like the corporate aspect of my career. I decided uh, probably when my son was like three or four to kind of slow down a little bit because, you know, I'm working 55, 60 hours a week. I wanted to be able to spend more time with my son because those are kind of the precious years. So took a job at Barcelona in German Village under Paul Yao. I became a part of a group of chefs um, that I'll never forget. Uh, I worked there for five years. The people that have come and gone, you know, that worked there in those five years are, you know, chefs all over the city now and in Cleveland. And it was just an amazing group of line cooks. We supported Chef Paul 125%. We always told him he never needed a sous chef because all of us like came together and did whatever was needed for him be the executive chef and be successful. And again, just another like embracing and, and a new uh, group of like comrade or people that I can just work together, trust, feel. It's like that true like family. Like this is my family outside of, of home. Just really came across a lot of really awesome people from front of the house to the back of the house. Amazing artists like Michael Ganan. He, he literally painted a portrait of every chef in the kitchen and it was displayed on Barcelona's wall for like a year. And like a ton of them got bought and sold to like studios in New York City and stuff. So it's kind of cool. Like there's literally a, a painting of my twin brother, Jeremy, holding a knife in some random place in like New York City. Like, you know, it's just all, all stems from this amazing experience and this amazing group of people that I worked with at Barcelona for those five years. Does your brother still cook? Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, an executive chef with the CMR Rusty Bucket. He's got three kids now and, uh, you know, he's just an amazing father. Uh, it's pretty cool. He's a great dude. And we, we spent most of our career together. Like we came as a package. And so it got to the point where you can't have two executive chefs in the same location, you know, with us each having a family to support. That's when we kind of had to like break our ties and realize like we can't work together. But yeah, we've spent most of our younger career together. Did you ever think about going to culinary school or was that just not an option with having your son? Never for two reasons. One, I just, I never had money to, like I could barely pay my bills and support myself and my son. Um, so money was definitely an issue. And then honestly, like, not to diss people that go to culinary school, but I feel like everyone that ever I ever worked with, not everyone, a large majority of people I work with that come out of culinary school aren't very good or they expect to step right into like this important chef role where like they can't even hang on the line and, you know, they don't know how to make basic sauces and emulsions and stuff. So my experience, like seeing all these kids coming out of culinary school was maybe it was a waste of money for them. And I didn't want to waste my money that I didn't have <laughs> towards it, you know. And honestly, I feel like, and this is what I tell young chefs nowadays, like I learned a ton from really bad chefs and really good chefs, you know, because you learn from both. You learn what not to do and you learn what to do. After the five years I spent at Barcelona, really, actually Kyle Katz owned it when, uh, Kyle Katz owned it when I first started working there. And then Scott Heimlich bought it about two and a half years in. So about halfway through my experience. And Scott Heimlich's a great guy. He always so nice to me and my family. But he also like made me appreciate like the independent restaurant and how important it is to support independent restaurants and and make sure that they get as much love and as much attention, if not more, than a lot of the corporate restaurants. Because uh, the corporate restaurants kind of set the tone as far as like what's expected in a dining experience. And and then when it comes to like the labor, like how much you can pay. And I'll be honest, it's hard to compete with some of those big companies that can afford to pay you know tons of money where you have all these independent restaurants. There's thousands and thousands of them in the city that can't afford to pay what those large corporations do. So it gets a little bit, it gets a little tricky. You have to entice people that 
you're not only going to have a great job and guaranteed paycheck, but you're going to learn. And I'm willing to teach anybody that's willing to learn. I've really fell in love with the just the independent aspect of the restaurant world. You're from Columbus, right? Yep. I was born in Columbus. Um, I lived in Siesta Key, Florida for uh, three years, moved to New Jersey for a year and a half, and then I've been in Ohio. I mean, you're basically a Columbus restaurant kind of lifer, so to speak. I mean, you've worked at a bunch of places. I mean, you already mentioned Wilhelm's. Do Amici, I think, at some point, right? Mezzo. Yep. Uh, Jeff Mathis was uh, my, he gave me my first executive chef position. I was the executive sous chef under Derek Michael at Do Amici. And uh, on a side note, uh, I was Derek Michael's sous chef for off and on for about six years. I, I really have to credit him a lot. Um, again, I learned so much like in my early years as a, uh, working up my way in the ranks of the corporate restaurants. But uh, Derek taught me what it means to make food sexy and like what it means to like be excited and, and uh, you know, maybe push the envelope of what you can get away with. And unfortunately, I feel like when I worked for Derek, like this, this city wasn't quite ready for the food scene that it is now. Jeff Mathis, again, he gave me the opportunity. My first executive position was at Barrio, um, Spanish Tapas and Bar on Spring and High Street, where uh, Haveli is now. And I think doing weekly meetings, keynote meetings with Jeff Mathis for two and a half years at Durimichi, he saw how serious I took the numbers and the bottom line and how I embraced uh, the inventory program. A girl that worked there taught me how to do formulas on Excel. And I pretty much like self-taught myself how to make these inventory spreadsheets. Like basically what these corporations are paying thousands and thousands of dollars to for these people to do these programs for them. I was doing on an Excel spreadsheet and tying all of my recipes and everything to my inventory. So I always knew what my food cost was, how much dish on my menu cost was. So I got super dorky in like that aspect of cooking. But again, like I said, like when I was younger, I hated learning and I didn't like school. But as an adult, I'm just hungry for information and hungry to learn to continuously learn and teach people. When you're bounced around to all the different restaurants that you worked at, you have to as a chef just to learn more. But were you specifically looking at each place? Like, what can I get knowledge wise from there? Or was it just people would reach out to you and be like, hey, we're opening this place where we have a spot on the team here. You know, we can pay you a little bit more than you're making now. Like, how did each stop you decide if that was the right fit for you? It's kind of a, again, like a learning thing. Before I went to do Amici as a executive sous chef, I took a break for a year and worked at uh, Rigsby's. I wanted to spend one year where I knew I was financially in a good spot where I could just be an hourly line cook, maybe pick up a couple odds and end jobs like when I wasn't working at Rigsby's. But that was kind of my last hourly position. And I wanted to learn from one of the best chefs in the city. And at the time, it just seemed like Chef Rigsby was like the person to work for. So I worked for him for a year and it was amazing. And I again, I met a lot of really awesome people that I, I, I cherish their friendships till this day. The short north was still that like old school, like everybody came from the birds, the gallery hops, like really high end, just beautiful independent restaurants and food like Rigsby's and Burgundy Room and so many awesome places that have come and gone. That was definitely one of the more calculated things I did, um, financially taking a risk, not being on salary and not, you know, getting these benefits that you get when you have those positions. But I was just really, I really wanted to learn from one of the best and I, I value that year that I got to spend with them. And then it was back to the grind, like focus my career. Like at that point, I wanted to be an executive chef. And I thought Derek Michael was going to be the guy to help me get there. And he was. And I've been an executive chef ever since. After I, after I left Barrio, I kind of saw the writing on the walls with the investors and kind of financial things that were going on there that I was like, I need to get out of here. So I went to Taste Hospitality and I, I was a executive chef at Hubbard Grill the first year it opened. 
I didn't open Hubbard Grill. Um, ben Geltzer did, but I took over because he was going to go open Mezzo up in Dublin. Uh, we've got Best New Restaurant 2011. My my twin brother, Jeremy, was my sous chef. It was really awesome. Great experience. Again, that was still in the shore north. just seems so much different than it is now before the growth and whatnot. Sheila Troutner, who owns Taste Hospitality, kind of saw the talent, saw where I, the direction that I quickly took Hubbard Grill and asked me to go to Mezzo and kind of fix and help with what's going on up there. So luckily I had spent so much time with Italian food with um, Abracci and Dio Amici that Italian food was just kind of my thing at that point in my career. So I spent a good five years off and on at Mezzo. Um, I was promoted to culinary director. I oversaw nine operations under that umbrella from catering. I did 250 weddings. Uh, I started a catering business from the Mezzo's basement and did weddings out at Corazon. And within that umbrella, I did pretty much everything under the culinary like, you know, we had normal restaurants, we had grab and go restaurants, we had golf clubs, a little turtle golf club came under the umbrella, like later in my seven years with that company. So I really like self-taught slash took everything that I had done in my career and did it at four taste hospitality. The last year at taste was my seventh year with the company. I, I did catering out of Creekside and it just wasn't sexy to be perfectly honest. I kind of did it because we kept kind of having a revolving door of chefs out there. And it was one of the more profitable businesses under that umbrella. So it needed uh, a good person to be running it. But it was just a nightmare. I hated every every minute of it. I didn't like, I had to do tasting several times a week for people that are doing weddings. And it just wasn't what I, what I thought seven years in that company, that's where I'd end up. And it kind of burnt me out from cooking. I, I took a break and kind of retired from being a chef. And that's when... Um, Megan Atta with Astra Supper Club was, uh, she gave me an opportunity to be a general manager in the front of the house. And there's kind of a funny, like, side story to that. Um, I randomly just saw a Craigslist ad for a general manager, and I it was a shot in the dark. It was the only front of the house uh, job I ever applied for or sent my resume to. Daniel Morris was um, doing consulting for her, and he does, he's been consulting throughout Columbus for the years in Colorado. And he was actually the general manager at Hubbard Grill in 2011 when I first met him. He told Megan Atta, the owner, like, get rid of all these resumes. Like, this is your guy. And I think it was just kind of fate that Daniel Morris came across my resume. Kind of the rest is history. I embraced the front of the house. I, I wanted to work in the front of the house because I had worked with so many shitty front of the house managers that just sit around all day and think that they're the shit. And they put their feet up on the desk and barely break a sweat. And I was like, no, like, I want to prove to myself. I didn't need to prove to anybody else, but I wanted to prove to myself that I could be a kick-ass front of house. And it's funny because Megan hired me to take over Asterisk so she could focus on this new concept that was going to be in the Bruner building in Short North. You know, irony aside and, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I decided or we decided as a group um, because we knew that we had this spot in the Bruner building in the Short North, but we didn't know what the concept was going to be. And I had a huge passion for ramen traveling to uh, New York City. I went to Momofuku on one of my son's spring breaks and I just I just fell in love. Like I, I loved everything I saw, the different flavors, which I didn't even know what umami meant back then. But it really like kind of took my interest. And Megan and her family are from Guam. So not only do they have a lot of like Japanese restaurants in Guam, tourists, but most of the time they travel through Japan to get back to the States or Hawaii. So they've been eating ramen their whole entire life. So for a year while Ampersand was under construction, I was practicing ramen in my downtime 
uh, in the kitchen at Asterisk while I was running the front of the house as a general manager. It's just kind of funny that she originally hired me to take that over, but now I'm, you know, moving on to take over this beautiful concept in the, the, the Bruner building. So we decided to go with ramen, more Japanese focused, like the first menu. Once COVID came, we really had to like rethink like how we're going to operate this restaurant and, you know, pay our bills and et cetera, et cetera, be able to pay staff. So we pretty much doubled our menu with, you know, all the things that people would be enticed by, like egg rolls and crab rangoons, fried rice, and just kind of like not the kind of higher end, like gumbri rice bowls, and ramen that like are awesome, but might not appeal to everybody. And we had tons of success with that menu, like doubling it like we did. And one of the really cool things that COVID did for us was like, we have so many regulars that have never even been in our restaurant. And then when they finally got vaccinated and they were able to come and dine in the restaurant, it was just like such a rewarding experience for me as a chef. But also I think one of the amazing things about Ampersand is it's an open kitchen. I love seeing people take pictures of my food, sharing and, you know, sharing the soups and small plates and stuff. And it's just very rewarding for me as a chef. And I've never gotten so much gratitude and good reviews and good just feedback from, from or that I do in Ampersand than I have in my entire uh, career. And with that being said, kind of bouncing around and being promoted here and um, being transferred there, I always took over someone's menu. This is my first opportunity, like from the get-go, that this is my food, my menu. Like I'll have other sous chefs help influence and, you know, we'll play around with ideas, but it, I could really take ownership and take pride. Like this is my food 100%. So going back a little bit, back to the Hubbard grill days, you're not the opening chef, but you take over and then you guys get the best new restaurant award. Was that all unexpected for you? Definitely. Because I was still young and kind of nervous, you know, being promoted at Barrio, I had the luxury of already working for my boss for almost two and a half years. So taking on my next, like stepping away from that company and my first like executive chef position that I got hired in as exec was scary, you know, and I, I was nervous and I didn't want to make mistakes. Um, but I think the, the staff embraced me. I embraced them. I think the gentleman before me might have been pretty mean. And I'm at this point in my career, pretty, I learned that freaking out pretty much gets you nowhere in this business. So I'm, I'm very even keeled and I can make my way through the biggest bum rush with, you know, without kind of freaking out like a lot of people do. And, and I think that that helped like the camaraderie of the staff to be, feel confident to, to sell the features, to brace the menu and really push it in the dining room. I think that camaraderie with the, the staff and the front, of, and I know it's like camaraderie like 10,000 times, that'd be a better word. The relationship that us chefs and back of the house had with the front of the house was just awesome. And uh, we felt like we could just go to war and like go to war with each other and gallery hop. We'd have tickets literally down to the floor and we just embraced it and we owned it. And it was a lot of fun. And to get best new restaurant was definitely unexpected because that kind of stuff wasn't really on my radar at that time in my career. How difficult is it to change the menu at a place like Hubbard Grill? It's almost like a legacy place in the short north. Like it's been there for 10 years now. Like everybody, you know, knows the sign. You know, I think everybody, when they go in there, they expect certain things to be on the menu. So altering or changing the menu like how difficult is that with having regulars who have a set of expectations well there's a couple like we would definitely keep the signature dishes or the you know the, the local favorites but unfortunately anytime you change a menu you're going to upset somebody but we just hope that you do change a menu that people will embrace it and, and find a new favorite that they like i think my experience with the spanish um south american and euro spanish and of course all the italian experience i had allowed me to embrace this kind of American continental, like high-end food and like put my twist on it. 
with all these different flavors that I had been working with a few years before that. And I think, you know, when I got to Hubbard Grill, like Columbus is really, that's when it like, it's really starting to become like foodie city. It's not like your flyover meat and potatoes identity that we've had for, at that point in my career, most of my career. When I travel and I'd say I'm a chef, I cook here and there. And they're like, Columbus, Ohio, like, like there's, that's a flyovers country. It's like, well, I beg to differ. So I think the, I think the short North embraced the food that I was creating. Um, our ownership seemed very happy. Um, the staff loved it and, and they sold it to the, to our, our regulars and all the uh, people that are coming into town for conventions and the transit folks, like uh, we were just a, an appealing factor in the short North. When you're doing the executive corporate chef kind of for taste hospitality and you're doing the wedding stuff, is it possible to even have great wedding food? Absolutely. It is? Okay. Because I just wonder, like, you have to do so much food for, you know, two, 300 people. It's just like diminishing returns. Like, you can only get it to, to this certain level or whatever. You know, I haven't been to a, a lot of weddings, but for the most part, like, it's the smaller the wedding, usually the better the food, at least in my experience. Most definitely. And that's what I was going to get at. Like, the smaller weddings, oh, man, we could super sexy, take time to really garnish and, and clean plates and stuff. Honestly, after doing it for a year, I really train the staff and the other managers there to we weren't buying all the pre-made bs like i was making 20 pound burblancs and flipping 500 steaks like i had like tennis elbow literally from making burblancs and flipping steaks for you know we do two or three weddings a weekend sometimes two weddings a day these people are spending twenty five thousand dollars, so you can't mess it up you know there's very very little room for failure or it was difficult trying to get people to understand why we do the things we do and why we want it to be sexy. And a lot of catering, they, they just have pre-made everything. When you're feeding the masses and you have a continental breakfast for 200 at seven in the morning, but then you have two more weddings like throughout that day, like it gets tricky with the, the inventory, the walk-in, like this speed racks for this party, this speed racks for this wedding. Um, you, you just have to really be on top of it. And I went to the grocery store all the time, like for tastings, because if Joe Schmo wanted x y and z for their tasting you can't just like order like small amounts of anything so that got a little bit tricky to just going to the grocery and trying to resource the best product that i could to answer your question uh, you can make wedding food sexy but it's really hard it's a lot of work what's the biggest challenge with executing food for a wedding is it just the organization of you have so much stuff going on or is it sourcing or ingredients and stuff that you need or two things that come to mind the ordering aspect of it, just making sure you, you cross your T's and dot your I's. You know, you don't want to forget this cheese for this cheese butter or whatever the case may be. Um, really working with your purveyors. I think that's another really important thing that's helped me in my career is just having awesome relationships with the purveyors that I've worked with over the years. And some of them I've literally worked with for 15 plus years. Um, and you develop relationships with those people that you trust them and you know, you're, you're trying to resource a certain kind of a steak or fish or, you know, what do you think will carry over well, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those, that aspect of every single wedding is important. Just being able to resource what these people want. I feel like the thorn in my side of most weddings is the best man speech. Like that's your timing. Like that either kills your steak or your steak's going to be perfect. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but man, nine times out of 10, you're praying that this dude speeds it up or wraps it up because once the best man starts the the speech, like that's when, you know, your pre-marked steaks are going in the oven, you're finishing your Blancs, you know, you're about to sell 200 to 500 plates and you got to get everybody in line. You got to get your plates out of the warmer so they're not too hot to touch. And it's just all about timing. So that best man speech and timing are one of the trickiest. 
When uh, Meg decided to open another restaurant, you know, you're doing the front of the house stuff at Asterix and taking a break kind of from cooking and the opportunity comes to open another restaurant. Before ramen was kind of even in the picture, we discussed, I don't, I don't know how you would phrase it, but kind of more of a healthy fare and like, a, I guess, no really type of cuisine, but just resourcing and having like traditional dishes from around the world, but just really well developed ingredients or resource or fresh or whatever. But then we just remind ourselves that like we're right across the street from like North Star. Like, what does the short North need? What could we possibly get away with doing there? And that's when I kind of really started kind of pushing for like the ramen Asian kind of cuisine. At that point, like Megan really trusted me. Um, I had taken over the kitchen a handful of times when people are sick or if a chef leaves. So she got an opportunity to see like what I can do and what I'm capable of doing in the back of the house. So I think that gave her the confidence to really trust the direction that we we're going. And then honestly, like her and her parents were my taste testers. Like they they helped me really kind of take the blinders off and like learn how to work with these different flavors and a lot of the stuff I had never heard of and resourcing a lot of the initial like meetings that we had with purveyors like some of them didn't even speak english so it was just it was pretty tricky and kind of scary it's like holy crap like i'm I'm really doing this like we're we're doing this we're taking it on it was kind of scary but at the end of the day it's just cooking we all kind of put our twists on things as chefs and i take what i've done in my experience and like our our show you ramen has like pepper not on it like it's just kind of random but over time you develop your palate and you kind of see what flavors work with one another and as i'm learning uh this new cuisine that I've never cooked before in my life. I'm just constantly pulling from what I've done in my career and trying to compare it to that and to fully embrace and understand it in my mind from an execution standpoint and a and a production standpoint of being able to prep all this and, and make sure it's consistent. Also teaching, you know, I think a lot of cooks are antagonized to come work for us because it's like, oh, it's Asian. Like, I don't know how to cook Asian food. Like, I, I definitely think is not the way to go into it because I never cooked Asian food until we opened this restaurant. Ramen's one of those things where you hear about, you know, all the different ramen shops in Japan and there's like a set way to do it to be considered as with most kind of food categories. You have to do it this way in order for it to be true ramen. But then you get people that kind of tinker with it and it becomes this great thing. Maybe to these purists, it's not exactly ramen because it doesn't have the exact type of flour used or whatever in the noodles. How did you kind of go through all that tinkering and figuring out how do I want my ramen to taste for other people's ramens and creating different kinds? Like, how did you come to terms with all that stuff? Well, I think having a passion for ramen and eating it, like every opportunity I could get, I just always thought like in my mind, like this could be better or like this could look prettier or kind of getting back to like the sexy food. Like I could really make this look sexy and, and appealing, like visually appealing. My twin brother is an amazing artist, like cartoonist. I can barely draw a stick figure, but my way of, of art is it's through food. So that's kind of what initially I wanted to kind of take on ramen because I just wanted to make it awesome. I would say like, I mean, I can definitely say that we are not traditional by any means. Um, our tonkatsu ramen is probably the most traditional in our menu. The beauty of, again, working for independent restaurant owners and people like Megan is she gives me the opportunity to create and stay within the concept, but also making sure that it's profitable and people enjoy it and like it. We've had a lot of success with that. And I, not to like, you know, pat myself on the back, but I think, you know, tweaking all these recipes at Asterisk and relying on her family to kind of like coach my palate and because you're working with soy and like all these different kinds of sources of sodium that it's, it gets tricky where you don't want stuff too salty or you don't want to under season things and this dashi is too fishy so we really worked a lot of 
of the menu before we open in that fashion. But then once we open, um, my my opening sous chef, Che, he helped me just kind of like put the finishing like wrap around how we're going to season the vegetables and kind of pulling the dishes together. And like he saw my vision and kind of helped me like really bring it to a plate and a bowl and, and um, how we're going to garnish it, how uh, we're going to do our pork chasu. I think working and having awesome sous chefs work under you allows us to, um, you know, kind of put our walls down and, and embrace other people's ideas. And I think that's really important as a chef. So with that being said, I, I definitely had a, a lot of help opening with Che. And then, of course, Megan, aka Boss Lady, like she's always trying and I'm always giving her spoons and like, what do you think of this? Um, And we're constantly tweaking and evolving our menu, even to this day, especially now since COVID, like a lot of uh, resources aren't there anymore. And there's so many ingredients that are either locked up in some port somewhere in China or uh, New York or LA, or it's been pretty difficult from disposables to some of the chilies that I use for our hot sauce or chili oil. It's like, we have to kind of evolve and work with what we're able to resource at this time. I'm not a, this is set in stone type of chef. Like there's always room to improve and, and make better. When you guys first opened, were you getting most of your ingredients from overseas initially? Um, no, actually I resourced a lot of, a, a lot of it locally. And again, having those relationships with the purveyors like um, Northern Hazarot, they're based out of Cleveland. They're kind of the last like independent, like big broadliner company aside from like your Cisco's and US food and, you know, this, that, and the other. And then Banyan is a company that did mostly disposables, but they had like some frozen food, this, that, and the other. And I kind of didn't have the best luck with um, True World and JFC and a lot of these other Asian purveyors. Some of it was just the language barrier. Some of it was like, I kind of felt like they didn't want to work with me for one reason or the other. So Kina, the lady who owns Banyan, I was like, look, like these are the the ingredients that I need to resource for this menu. And if you store them at your facility, like I, it's like a guaranteed purchase. You know, we kind of worked with each other to, so she helped me tremendously with resourcing ingredients and some of the stuff I'd never heard of. You know, I, I learned it um, through recipe books and YouTube and, um, and online. And that's to answer your other question, that's really how I taught myself was through YouTube and cookbooks and just having a ton of people that are happy to try ramen any and every day of the, of the week, you know. Was sushi on the menu too originally? Originally, we like when we were building up to promote ampersand before we opened, that was a, an idea that we definitely wanted to do. And admittingly, like I'm just not very good at it. Um, I can do it, but it's not sexy. And so that kind of got nixed. We even had like a little like sushi part of like the, the hotline that was going to be dedicated to sushi. Um, but now it's just like where we keep all of our backups for the hotline, <laughs> you know. Um, and we've played around with it in the past. I actually have two chefs that work under me now, Chef Michael Sanchez. He was, he's my executive sous chef. He worked for Benihana for nine years all over the country, actually 10 or 11 years all over the country, overseeing different operations, doing tons of uh, sushi. And then a gentleman named Nate Loyes, our sous chef, he came from San Francisco. We just kind of lucked out. Um, he moved here because his wife's family is here and he has a lot of like high-end experience with Japanese cuisine and sushi and stuff. So it's not out of the question and it might make its way onto our menu. But to answer your question in the beginning, we definitely kind of promoted that, but I backed away from it when I felt I just didn't feel confident. What was the biggest challenge with opening in the short north? I remember announcement first came out that you guys were going to open too. And it was walk by and kind of seeing like, when, when are they actually going to open? Like you're kind of looking to see how much progress is going on inside and all the construction and stuff. And there wasn't really too many other restaurants 
I think around that time looking to open in the short north, but the short north itself was kind of just starting or maybe kind of in the middle of undergoing the change where now it feels like it's really linked to campus because of all the redevelopment that they did there. What was the biggest challenge with being in kind of this popular district? You know, a bunch of places have left because the rents have gone up and all that stuff. And I think COVID might have tamped down some of that. What was it initially that you guys faced? Since you kind of mentioned how like all that development is going on um, about two, three years ago, all these places are being kind of knocked down and they're putting big buildings in. Our construction was backed up months and months and months just because there wasn't enough plumbers. There wasn't enough electricians. Like they were all being spread thin with all these projects, like, you know, all the Cameron Mitchell restaurants that were going in down the street, the rooftop bars. And it was just, it was, uh, it was hard just to get these people to come finish. Like this guy can't do this until the plumber does that. And it's just the last six months just seemed like we we're always waiting on this guy to do this. So this guy can do that. And, you know, we're, we can't officially run the all the fire inspections and this, that, and the other, because we're just, seem like we're just always waiting on one component of, to kind of make the dominoes fall. So that was really challenging because at that point, you know, we had hired managers to take over Astros. Um, so we're paying double basically under one roof. Like this restaurant's trying to support not only myself and our opening chefs, but like the managers that we hired to take our places at Astros. So I think that was just really challenging trying to find things for people to do. Like I did dishes on the weekends at Asterisk like those last couple months just to save labor because I was there and, and Ampersand wasn't open yet. So being super antsy and excited about, you know, taking on this new step in my career, uh, construction was really bogging us down for just really simple things that could have been done a year or two earlier, like easily at the you know flip of a switch. With all the development going on, like I said, those guys were just spread thin. They were kind of like shysty and grumpy and they sat around a lot and it's just incredibly frustrating. But then once we open, like you said, with the kind of being connected to the campus, with everything being pushed back, we open a ramen restaurant in June and, you know, we're averaging 90 day degree weather and nobody knows about us. So the first six months was pretty scary. We didn't really, we didn't open in the, in the fall like we thought we would the year before, et cetera, et cetera. So it was hard just getting people in because it was hot and nobody really knew what our name was. But um, luckily the local people that live in the neighborhood kind of kept us afloat for a while. Um, we really didn't even do carry out very much at all until COVID. So I always thought it was weird. We're like that Asian restaurant that doesn't really do carry out. Now, like like last night, for example, I, I wasn't there, but I saw our end of the day sales and like 75% of our sales yesterday was carry out. You know, it's a rainy day and it's pretty awesome. To the, like when COVID happens, was that a fairly easy pivot? Because ramen just kind of works to go wise it's a hot broth you need your cooked noodles but like you can package them separately and then just yeah when you get home you take one you put it in the other and like you're kind of good to go as long as you're not driving like 40 minutes or something absolutely we pretty much rethought like the way the kitchen was at like the expo and got rid of all of our plates and stuff because you know there's no dine-in replaced everything with disposables we took our bus cart that we put 30 dishes that would come in from the dining room and turn that into like an expo counter another, an additional counter with, you know, all the souffle cups and lids and stuff. Um, so we really, we had to change quickly to keep up and really push that, hey, we just doubled our menu with all these awesome things that our regulars have been inquiring over the, that previous year. Like, hey, when are you guys going to do a crab rangoon? Or have you guys ever thought about putting an egg roll on the menu? Yada, yada, yada. So we did all of those things and um, we, we just had so much success with them. And I think COVID, you know, if you look at it glass half full, like it sucked. You know, we had to close, there was the riots, we had to board up our windows and take down the boards of our front doors every day for like a month. And 
it was stressful, but through all the, all the mayhem and the punches and the things that we've gone through, like we survived it and, um, we're more, we're busier now than we, than we ever have been, which is encouraging because a hundred degree heat index outside and, you know, we're selling a hundred plus ramen a night, which is awesome. So I think just really being consistent, kind of preparing yourself to, to do a lot of work and, and, uh, and production, I think that's the hardest thing right now is just keeping up with production. I kind of gave up on hourly line cooks because either they wouldn't show up for an interview or they'd work like one day and then they quit. It's just like super frustrating. So I, I talked Megan into let's embrace bringing on another salaried sous chef because those are people that are driven through their career and they're more reliable, et cetera, et cetera. So up until last week, I, I hired my first line cook since COVID. And it's just been three salaried managers running that restaurant for 14 shifts a week. So having the same people doing it all the time has made us very consistent. Do you think that's potentially a way for some smaller restaurants to, I don't want to say circumvent kind of the hiring crisis uh, that a lot of restaurants are having right now, but maybe kind of be able to find people where I think a lot of people who worked in restaurants, you know, if they were hourly some are still skeptical with going back. Am I going to get laid off again if there's another lockdown in my city or, you know, stuff like that in indoor dining goes away is making some positions if it is financially sensible for the restaurant or restaurant group to make them, you know, salary instead of hourly. Is that a way that you could attract talent for other restaurants or does it really depend on size too? Honestly, I, I absolutely think it is. Again, these people are driven by maybe having children, being married, like they they truly have a culinary, like a culinary dream to to become a chef or at the end of the day, those people seem more motivated than just like a random guy that just wants to get a paycheck and doesn't really care. And you've got them for about 50 to 55 hours a week. So that takes away having to have an AM guy here and an AM guy there. And we're just all there. We work about 12 hours a day, sometimes more. And um, we embrace each other's um, habits and we know this guy's strong points and this guy's weak points and we just all work together and we communicate a lot. So I think to answer your question, it's really made like, it reminds me of like these tight knit groups I used to work with when I was a younger line cook and like having this like family and like we work hard and we, we go to war with each other every day. And then we tackle the mountain of dishes at the end of the night when we close. And it's just kind of an all in, like we're really in this together. And I think Megan um, is just such a wonderful person to work for. And she uh, incredibly nice and generous to our staff and, and cares about them. And, and I think that also really makes a difference when you, when you work for people that work hard, but also care, like that's worth, that's worth it to me in the long run to work at any other place or to, to be encouraged to, to look for another place to work. Since Ampersand opened, how has the Short North changed? Because all that redevelopment's finished kind of now, and but there's still changes going on. I hate to look at it negatively, but I've spent most of my career in the Short North in the downtown area. And I think it's changed a lot. In some notes, it's like uh, High Street is now like the new um, Park Street. Like Park Street was where all the crazy bars were and like, you know, at least was like kind of off the beaten path of like High Street and like the the beautiful art galleries that aren't here anymore, the, the beautiful independent restaurants that aren't here anymore as much. I feel like it's like it's been taken over by just corporate dominating businesses. It's challenging to compete with those people. But I think the niche that we bring to the short north is like we want we're that Asian restaurant. We we're doing what is kind of popular and trending right now, which is ramen. On the on the other aspect of like people, and you know, it's definitely not the same community that it was ten years ago. I feel like a lot of like the the gay community isn't as present as it was most of my career working down there. And I think 
at nighttime, especially like Thursday through Saturday and sometimes Sundays, I feel like a lot of people avoid the shore north because it's literally just hordes of young people that are rowdy. They're, I have to run outside and, and yell at kids for jumping up and like hitting our sign or twiddling our umbrellas to the point where it's almost going to fall off of it. There's a lot of people that have zero respect for the people that work down there, what we, the blood, sweat, and tears that we put into creating a, an atmosphere and an environment that we wanted to bring to the short north. There's more shootings and stuff now. So I think, you know, having these clubs on every corner is just bringing a lot of kind of late night mayhem that people are avoiding altogether, which is hurting our business. We're, we're dead at 745 on a Saturday night because I feel like there's just hordes of young kids that are literally tripping over themselves and puking in our flower bed. And it's frustrating. It's not the short north that I grew up in, I guess. Is Momofuku still your favorite ramen besides your own? Um, I wouldn't say that. I think if I had to say, I think Mashiko does a really good job, aside from Ampersand. High Five Ramen in Chicago is an awesome experience. Like, literally, dude, they'll be on a 90-minute wait. One of those secret little, like, underneath the barbecue restaurant, this dark bar that serves ramen, and it's just amazing. A lot of it's, like, tonkatsu soup-based, just very unique, and I think just, like, the secrecy and, like, you know, you go down these, like, dark, like, stairwells hallways to get there it's just kind of like enticing and fun and then i think aside like locally aside from us i'd say machiko traveling aside from chicago we went to this ramen restaurant in dallas called tin t-e-n in a standing room only you can't sit down you literally are in line you go in pre-order in somebody gets out of the way and then you go where they are and you slip your news quick and you know it's just like kind of a it's a rotation of the masses um or you can take it outside and they have like a, basically like a fence with like this little tiny table that comes out and you can stand there put your bowl there and just slurp your noodles there and i mean these people had like 30 people waiting outside of their door when they opened for lunch so we we had it recommended to us when we were traveling it was a really really fun experience and their food was awesome What's more important, the noodles or the broth? Oh my gosh. Uh, I think it depends on who you ask. I used to like Tenske a lot up in um, the Kenny Road Henderson location when I was a younger ramen person where I didn't, uh, before I even cooked ramen. But then I realized that they use bases and um, I actually saw their miso base once on their expo line and uh, it kind of like disappointed me. I'm like, man, you guys don't make your own soup? At Ampersand, like, dude, our tonkatsu is a 30 hour pig head, pig femurs, pig feet. Like, dude, we put so much love into our food and our soup. I think that's what draws people back. But a lot of people are really into noodles. And that's why we partnered up with Sun Noodle out of Hawaii, because I don't have the resources or the space to make my own noodles at Ampersand. So if it's something that we're not going to make in-house, like I really wanted to make sure it's something that the masses are going to enjoy. So we do a wavy noodle. I love it. Boss Lady, you know, whenever we go out, we travel a lot. We always say like, gosh, like these noodles just aren't as good as ours or, you know, it's got the electricity. And But again, I, I believe it's just who you ask. At the end of the day, you're eating soup. If the broth is crap, then it's not, doesn't matter how good the noodles are. You know? Why is vegetarian ramen so hard to get right? Is it just because you can't put any fat or anything in there? Because I'm not a vegetarian. I've had a couple different variations of vegetarian ramen, but they always seem to be just giant salt bombs. And I like salt, but it's to the point where it's, too salty like even for me which is saying something right on so i've got kind of two small stories that go along with our um, vegetarian ramen working at asterisk um, it's right across the street from otterbein college on saturdays they have the farmer's market there so one morning boss lady and i did an early tea party before we open 
And then back then, I don't think we opened until like 12 or 1 in the afternoon. So we had a little bit of time before we opened and the dining room was set, et cetera, et cetera. So she's like, let's go check out the farmer's market. And that's where I met Jeff, the mushroom guy. And he's at, at or he's the mushroom guy, Ohio, or something like that. And I told him, I was like, hey, dude, I'm opening a ramen restaurant in like a year. And I really want to um, showcase a, a mushroom ramen. For me as a chef, like I love mushrooms. Like, I feel like they bring so much depth and flavor. And there's such an amazing variety of mushrooms that it's it's very uh, versatile. So with that being said, till this day, I still buy mushrooms from that guy. And that's why we named our Fungus Among Us, Fungus Among Us, because A, it's an Incubus album, which is pretty cool from the 90s. B, I'm writing, a re- I'm writing this menu on a couch in the office in Westerville. And it's just, I'm resourcing mushrooms from a guy that sells them at the college in Westerville and he grows them in Westerville. So that's why we named it Fungus Among Us. And then the first week we opened, uh, one of my very best friends, he's, he lives in Japan. His name's Junpei Moriota. I've been friends with him since second grade. He had to move back to Japan, I think when we were in like third or fourth grade. So we had been pen pals ever since. And then like when social media became a thing, like we were able to communicate through Instagram and Facebook. I left Facebook about three years ago because I just couldn't take anymore. But I still communicate through Instagram and email, et cetera. So ironically, you know, he had been planning to come to the States and we had been planning it like we're going to hang out and this, that, and the other. But of course, construction is six months late. So the week that he comes is the week that we open. So what better person to come try my ramen than one of my best friends that has truly been a pen pal best friend most of my life uh, to come and taste our ramen. And his parents were with him too. They traveled with him from Japan. And his dad used to work for Honda back in the 80s. And that's kind of how that all came. Because we, I, uh, I went to Dublin High School. I grew up in Dublin. Like That's where I graduated from. And uh, so he came and he's like, I've never had a mushroom ramen before. And, and I, that kind of blew me away because like through all of my research and stuff, I guess I never really came across too many vegetarian ramens or really any vegetarian ramens because again of that fat factor and all that goodness. We we marinate the the tofu that's in this ramen and our chasu, all these locally resourced mushrooms. We It's like, a again, it's an overnight stock with a mushroom stock and it's all the mushrooms and stems and stuff that we get from that mushroom guy. So to answer your question, I think we had a lot of success with this vegetarian ramen. There's a lot of depth. There's so much love. There's We finish it with a burnt garlic oil, which Boss Lady doesn't want me to call burnt garlic oil, but that's what it is. I literally burn five pounds of garlic and make this delicious oil out of it. All of my career, I've been taught not to burn garlic, but I came across this uh, recipe for burnt garlic oil, and it's, it's amazing. We garnish our tenkatsu and our fungus with it. So all of these flavors, the roasted tomatoes, like uh, the umami you get from a roasted tomato, to me, is like nothing gets better. Um, so we, we've really pulled it together. And we've done a couple of vegetarian ones aside from that. I, I did kind of like a, a poblano, like sole twist on a on a ramen once as a feature. And, um, so I think m- my son was a vegetarian almost his entire high school career. Um, he graduates Ohio State this December. So he was somebody that I, I had to cook for all the time that didn't eat meat. So to me, it, it just kind of came easy to me with, you know, all those things being said. Um, I don't think it's hard. I think it just takes passion. And I was always that chef that embraced like, oh, we got a vegetarian in the dining room. And I'm like, sweet. Like, I, I would literally do and try and make the most beautiful, flavorful thing instead of just like an afterthought, like here's some veggies tossed in marinara and like, you know, some shitty chopped parsley to go on top of it. You know, like I think uh, vegetarians are good too, so we should embrace them. You know, they pay their bills they, just like anybody else. And, uh, and vegans too, for that matter. We, we have an amazing vegetarian vegan crowd that promotes us because we have a lot of those options and it's not just some BS. Like it's, we put a lot of love in our food, including the vegetarian and vegan. Did your son ever express interest in 
going into the hospitality industry at all? Early on, no. I think just because, you know, you saw how tired I was and, you know, stress out a lot. A lot of times I bring my home or my work home with me. So I'll be coding invoices till two in the morning, writing formulas for inventories and stuff. But now that, you know, he's 22 years old, he's about to graduate and he wants to bartend to to put himself through graduate school. He's a really smart young man and uh, he, he can hold a really uh, amazing conversation with just about anybody. So I don't think he would ever want to cook. He cooked a, a like steak escape for like three months in high school and absolutely hated it. But he could walk there from our house. So it was like one of the very few options uh, of being employed at that age. But he worked at Ampersand for like the first year um, before COVID. So he got to see how I work and, you know, how Megan works. And, and I think he's, you know, he's ready to kind of go off on his own and him and his girlfriend might move to a different city after he graduates. And so I think being in the hospitality industry and seeing what I've done with my career, like that's going to help him uh, get to where he wants to be for whatever he decides to do in his career, which is not going to be bartending, but I think it's a good bridge to pay your bills and continue to educate himself. Did you ever consider leaving Columbus to cook in a different city or did you ever have an opportunity come your way to do so and considered it and just kind of passed on it? I've had people reach out to me through like headhunters that I might have worked with in the past that honestly, I get emails all the time about opportunities. And I just, I love Columbus, man. It's a big, small town, you know, like I'll run into people and I can't remember if I work with you somewhere or I went to high school with you, but I, I love and I embrace Columbus, Ohio. And um, I think there's so much potential for the city to just keep getting better and better. I think we'll make it through like, you know, these like um, nightclub kind of craziness that we're experiencing right now and get back to the basics. And I love Columbus. I don't, I don't foresee myself leaving. If anything, I just feel myself digging in even more and, you know, embracing the community that has embraced me over these 25 plus years in the restaurant industry. Where do you see the food scene in Columbus headed for, you know, the next five years, rest of this decade? Um, I think it's definitely going to be more diverse. I think like restaurants like Row, so many amazing, just hole in the wall restaurants all over the burbs. I think it's just going to get more and more um, intertwined with fusion because, like I said, it's not really a meat and potatoes restaurant anymore. From my experiences at Barrio through Hubbard, and you know, I just always put my little bit of a twist on what used to be traditional. So I, I feel like the restaurant scene is just going to be a lot of fusion and different chefs being creative and, and coming up with these amazing concepts and restaurateurs. What's next professionally for you as a chef? I mean, any thoughts to opening another restaurant or one of your own any day or? Well, I don't think I'll never work for another company. Uh, as a side note, I've, uh, I fell in love with Megan Adam and uh, we make, we're like the dynamic duo in the, in the restaurant industry. We work really hard together. We, we understand each other and how we're driven and how, we're just motivated to continuously be better and better. And as an independent restaurant, we want not only like we don't really need to prove anything, but we want to show Columbus that like two people that work really hard can do amazing things. And again, like I think the people that have worked for us in the past and the people that work for us now, uh, the, the biggest difference is, is just working for people that care about you and, and uh, you care about them. So as a chef, you know, I think I've plateaued. I've, I've done it all from culinary director to weddings, et cetera, et cetera. There could possibly be another ampersand down the road. I know Megan wants to open up a, her own breakfast um, club in the next few years. So that'll be exciting. Um, so if anything, uh, ampersand is my baby. And right now that's that's my focus. And I want to get to that four or five year mark where we're really, you know, we're really honing in and, 
and we've set our anchor and people know about us and we have a good reputation. And that's kind of my short term slash long term goals is to, you know, we, we signed a 10 year lease in the Brunner building and, and I want that place to be the best ramen in Columbus. This question comes from Chef Aaron Klaus, who's the pastry chef over at A&R Creative. So he does pastry for the Market Italian Village, Hoofhearted, The Crest. Uh, he was a previous guest uh, ahead of you on the podcast. So the question he left behind, is there a specific chef or artist that has changed your cooking or plating style over the course of your career? I would definitely say Derek Michael. Like He really taught me about plating and using the as they say, like the negative space of a plate and kind of getting back to that, like sexiness of food. Like he really pushed the envelope to, for me to understand, you know, getting height and making things look beautiful. But I would definitely say Derek Michael really taught me the importance of, uh, of the appeal and the visual appeal of food. Is there a question that you want to leave behind for the next guest? It could be anything. It doesn't have to be anything specific. I guess what inspires him or her to go down the path that they have chosen in their career is that motivating factor still what drives them so a handful of more questions for you we ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast so it's a nice compare and contrast for the listeners across all the episodes who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far i would say probably my mom i, I learned how to cook from my mom i was always the kid in the kitchen listening to conversation stringing beans and chucking corn and she grew up on a farm so you know she would always make home cooked meals and um, she she's just my biggest inspiration and not having a dad like she was like my mom and my dad so i think she inspires me more than what's the one item that's not a knife that you can't live without oh that's easy a dry towel seriously you can't do anything in the kitchen with anything less than a dry towel and and not to knock my two sous chefs right now but Gosh, they always have wet towels on their station. So I go to grab something out of the oven or the saute pan and every single one of their towels is wet. So a dry towel for sure. What's uh, one thing in a restaurant that if it breaks, you're not going to try and fix it yourself. You're going to call somebody. Don't care, you know, what it costs. Like this thing breaks. Like I'm not dealing with it. I'm not messing with it. Getting somebody in here to fix it. Oh, <laughs> we had a combi oven at Asterisk um, that, you know, had all these pre-settings and you can do all this crazy stuff, dehydrate, steam, et cetera, et cetera. But once one of those fancy features doesn't work, it kind of affects the whole rest of the equipment. And it's just a motherboard of craziness connected to a really hot cooking device. So the Kumbi oven, for sure, it's so confusing. What's uh, one restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? So, you know, scenario I always give is person gets delayed at the airport, uh, stuck overnight, reaches out to you, hey, I need somewhere to go eat, stuck here. You guys aren't open. You're sending them to this place. I would probably say uh, La Tabla in Grandview. Uh, Rick Lopez is an amazing chef. I respect him a lot. I think his food's amazing. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Is there any place that you want to go, want to eat at that you haven't been to? I feel like I'm. that's where me as a chef, like I'm I don't know of a lot of other restaurants around the world, like or in, even in this country. I'm sure like I've heard about it, but I just I probably can't remember what the name is. So kind of in a dorky way, I don't have like that kind of a destination as far as a restaurant goes. I think Momofuku, uh, back in the day, I would have said that. But now that I've been there, and I don't know, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. But traveling, I'd love to go to Japan. I'd love to go to Spain. I'd love to go to Italy. Like I, I could pick any three of those out of a hat. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I would have to say when I was uh, the chef at Mezzo in Dublin. And it's an open kitchen, the expo. My back is facing the dining room. 
And I look over and my saute cook and my grill cook are literally punching each other. And I'm like, what? Oh my guys, guys. So then by the time I, I'm able to make my way around the counter into the kitchen, the bigger dude is literally holding the other guy's head over a burner that is on and punching him in the face. And I'm not a very big dude. So I'm in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how am I going to break this up without getting punched or whatever? But at the end of the day, like you're at the helm, like you got to just jump in there. So I literally jumped in. This dude is huge, almost got hit. This other guy's bleeding all over the place. Everybody's scared. The dining room has come to a complete halt. Like you could hear a pin drop and it was just insane. And I'm yelling at this guy at the top of my lungs to stop punching this guy. And he's holding his head over a damn flame. Like, I don't remember, but his hair might've even like fringed up. Like it was, it was insane. And I fired both of them on the spot. I hopped on the line and worked the rest of those two stations throughout the rest of the Friday night shift. And I definitely will never forget that moment. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything uh, in the food or drink uh, category that you know is unhealthy for you or not great for you, but you just can't help yourself, whether it's trying to miss that certain aisle in the grocery store or fast food or anything? I love take fives. They're like the best candy bar ever. Um, that's definitely my guilty pleasure. Like any given night, and I don't eat very much sweets, but no, I do. I have like a sweet tooth at nighttime. I could easily kill a whole bag in one sitting. Probably regret it the next day, but zero uh, shame. It's my guilty pleasure. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, the thing that you look back on your career and you can kind of point to that moment where that you knew you could do it professionally as a chef, kind of like that aha moment where everything just came together. I guess Hubbard Grill, because like at, at Barrio, I was still, that was my first chef position. So I kind of took over a menu. I changed it a little bit, but it, it was a very minor changes because I was just terrified to change anything. Um, going to Hubbard Grill and putting my own food on the menu Again, were things that I like. I put a, a tofu pad thai on the menu, and everybody and their brother thought I was crazy, but it was awesome. And you know, it was really good. I had these. I love cooking scallops. I love the smell of raw scallops, searing scallops. Like to me, a good diver scallop is just one of the best things in, in the world. I did this dish. One of my first dishes I put on the menu there is seared scallops. Beautiful uh, um, local asparagus. It's like a roasted red pepper, kind of like a cream sauce. With, it wasn't it was Israeli couscous. It was just like super, not like super light, but not heavy. And it was just kind of that perfect medium and just got tons of really good feedback from it. And I just, I think that was one of those dishes where it's like sweet, like people love this. And, you know, as a young chef and you get very nervous and you don't know how people are going to see how your flavors and the things that you twist that you put on old classics are, are going to gonna be taken in the dining room. So I'd say that one more recently. I think our show you at Ampersand, there's just so much different flavors going on in it. It's two soups. One's a dashi. It's half dashi and half chicken stock. Dashi is like kind of like the mother broth of like all Japanese cuisine. Like I had mentioned before, it's got the pepernata in it, crispy broccolini that just brings this nuttiness to the dish. Bini shoga, which is like a pickled ginger um, that's a little bit salty, but just adds so much robust flavor to the broth once you kind of mix it in. And then uh, we confit the chicken and chicken fat. It's just like chicken thighs. And we basically skim all the fat off of our chicken stock and cook our chicken in that just to get 100% yield out of that dish. And then our chili oil, which I, I love our chili oil. I love spicy food. And I think aside from this shoyu dish and that scallop dish, honestly, this chili oil that we created is, it's like from all, all ranges of the Asian world. There's gogujang from Korea. There's Thai chilies. There's sambal leek, tons of garlic. And it just really enhances anything you put it on. Like we literally have 
we have it in, in our refrigerator here at home. Like, but yeah, that shoyu dish, it's got that spice level, all these different umami flavors. The aroma coming off it is amazing. And I'm just really proud of that dish. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were, was there an episode moment scene from his career that stood out to you? Or if you weren't, was there anybody who was like a culinary kind of TV personality, whether it was somebody like Emeril or you know Jacques Pepin or Yen, anybody that was on TV or something that you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up as a cook? Absolutely. Um, I love uh, Meets West or whichever one that that one was that was really fun to watch as a as a young person i thought emerald lagasse was pretty funny and like kind of cheesy at the same time and again like i, I started my career cooking like creole and uh, louisiana style food so it's kind of funny to look back on that i think anthony bourdain's an amazing person chef personality so definitely a big fan i can't remember what program it was from but um it was when he was in spain and they like dug up these onions from the ground and like wrapped the onion stalks in like newspaper and yeah, drink wine through it. And like, gosh, I was just like, that seems so bizarre. But these people seem so incredibly happy and they're enjoying every moment of it. And then, you know, just the way that Anthony Bourdain explains things just like kind of puts you right there in the moment. You know, like, I got goosebumps just saying that. Uh, I think he's an incredible voiceover and just really incredible person to guide you through his television shows. Aside from that, I loved when he went to Lyon with Chef Boulard, when he met Barack Obama. Like, that was definitely a highlight. And, my viewer viewership as a Anthony Bourdain fan. And then I think when he was with the uh, chef, uh, Jose Andares, like that was a really cool episode too. So there's so many to pick from, you know, to, but off the top of my head, I, I love those episodes. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug, all that stuff. So uh, Ampersand is at 940 North High Street in the short north. We're directly across from North Star. Um, my Instagram is Josh Cook Picks. And then our uh, Ampersand Asian Supper Clubs on Instagram, Facebook, you know, the whole nine yards. We're open seven days a week, 1130 to nine during the week, um, 1130 to 10 on Friday and Saturdays. We have an amazing lunch menu Monday through Fridays with a starter and an entree for like 13 bucks. It's a definite please, pleaser for a lot of the people that work in the offices downtown. And then we always serve our full menu all the time. If you're going to do carryout, we would really appreciate doing it through our, our website. Because that way we get 100% of the proceeds, but we're also on Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber. But, you know, just keep in mind those companies take anywhere from 15 to 30% of every single order. So, and, and for whatever it's worth, uh, I really want to tip my hat again to, to Megan. She's, uh, she's been an amazing and she allowed me to be a part of every single aspect of opening Ampersand from going down and getting the liquor license, uh, to I was able to basically, uh, create and, design the hotline how I wanted to working with the architect and the construction folks. So this is the first kitchen I've ever been able to work in that I actually designed her teaching me how to work with people in the front of the house. And it's really kind of like pulled everything, my whole career together, uh, having that opportunity and experience to work in the front of the house and then working with her behind the scenes from being involved in everything, like walking through the building with a hard hat. And there's no windows in the in the windows and there's gravel on the floor to, to seeing where it is now in the beautiful modern Japanese um, atmosphere in the dining room, the way that she's let, allowed me to, to do the food and stuff at Ampersand, take ownership on it. It's really awesome. And a lot of chefs don't have that opportunity. So I definitely tip my hat to, to Megan for giving me that opportunity. 
We've been in there a few times. The food is great. It feels like an authentic ramen house. If you were going to kind of make like an upscale version of, you know what I mean? Like it's it's really clean and modern and but you still get that kind of ramen vibe, kind of light colored wood and everything. All the little touches that you guys put into it and you know, every time, you know, we get walk by through like the short north and stuff, you guys are packed out, which is awesome to see and I'm glad to to hear that you guys made it through, you know, the the first 6 months which are always kind of dubious for a restaurant to open and it's like what's going to happen and then with everything that was going on in the short north and still is so it's it's awesome to hear that you guys have had you know success and you guys are going to be there for the long haul and short north is a place where it's changed so much and there's not a whole lot of like destination style kind of restaurants that bring you to the short north there's a lot of places that when you're in the short north you're walking through and you're like oh you could eat there you could eat there but no you guys definitely have a unique concept and unique thing going on and delicious food so it's it's awesome to hear all the success you guys have had and and everything that you guys should have you know going forward too but yeah anytime you know you want to come back on the podcast or whatever talk food open invitation appreciate you coming on the podcast definitely stay in touch look forward to seeing you in ampersand when we're back in there next yeah i can't thank you enough and wish you guys the best of luck and stay in touch and we'll talk soon thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, i look forward to meeting you in person a big thanks again to chef josh cook for coming on the podcast sitting down talking with me about ramen and short north and his career and everything was super happy to be able to connect and and get him on the podcast too as well so again make sure to follow him on instagram at josh cook picks and also the restaurant at ampersand asian supper club all one word no spaces or underscores or hyphens or anything like that check out their website too you can do reservations they do to-go food they do lunch and dinner too as well like he said towards the end of the podcast there so check out all that stuff like i said check out all our stuff more stuff's on the way too as well more chef interviews um working on lining those up and recording those so got a lot of stuff in the works and on the back burner so really excited to share that with everybody and Appreciate everybody listening. Feel free to reach out. Questions, comments, feedback, recommendations, anything like that. Contact Porter on the website, or you can email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. That's it for this week. Appreciate everybody listening. Have a good weekend. Talk to you guys next week.